0: Today we're going to talk about a poll conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. That poll found some pretty disturbing results. It all has to do with salvation and how one achieves salvation. Hang on because Christian Grad Fellowship Podcast starts right now. So welcome. Welcome back. This is um, season two. We're very excited to be kicking off our new season. Um, we, uh, we took a break there for a couple of weeks um, while we were getting ready for the new season. We've got some really exciting things coming up this year. Uh, you're going to want to hang around and uh, find out more about those details. Uh, amongst other things, um, not this week, but within a couple of weeks, we've got a new staff person here at, uh, at Christian Grads Fellowship. Um, we're excited that he's uh, coming on board. He's going to be our Director of Campus Coaching. We, uh, we are excited to bring FundMe on board, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to bring him on, and we're going to have him tell his story, which is going to be just amazing, I-, I promise. But before we can get to all that, we've got to deal with this poll that came up. This came across my desk a couple of days ago, and really have had to readjust what I was planning on doing for the beginning of this season because of this. Um, and I was really genuinely disturbed when I saw this. So let me lay a couple of statistics out here. Um, One is one in 33 Americans, uh, or I guess that would be 33%, say they consider themselves to be a Christian and affirm the statement that, quote, when you die you will go to heaven only because you have confessed your sins and accepted Christ as your savior. That's 33% of America. Unfortunately, 48% of America believes. This statement, a person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven there is no there is no earning places in heaven that's um that's a fallacy that is that is something we reject absolutely from a theological standpoint and we're going to talk a little bit about our theology we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what this means culturally today, but it ought to serve as It ought to serve as a wake-up call, um, not just for us, but for our church, for our ministries, for our friends, um, for what it means in our culture writ large, that almost half the people in, in, in the U.S. believe that just being good enough or doing enough good things will somehow land you in heaven. It's a lack of understanding of basic Christian theology, and I find it stunning this same survey also found out that fifty four percent of US adults believe uh... they will go to heaven after they die and only two percent believe they're going to go to hell well you know hell is something the evangelical community has stopped saying in general we don't like to talk about it it comes across as very negative and I understand why but as a result of that people have either stopped believing in hell that it exists, that, that there is some sort of, of uh, judgment that comes after death, or they just don't believe they're going to go there. 15% admit they don't know what's going to happen after they die, and 13% uh, percent say there is no life after death, so everything just stops. And then we get into much smaller numbers for reincarnation and... Other places believe or other folks believe they're going to go to, to other places and, and we roll off into those things. George Barna, who is jokingly uh, here at Krishna grads referred to as our patron saint. Um, he did the original study for us about graduate students um, and uh, we keep a picture of him up in the office just to remind us of that. Uh, all in good, all in good humor, folks. All in, don't like, don't send me emails. The George Barnard, director of research uh, for the Cultural Research Center, said, quote, "Americans are in an anything goes mindset when it comes to faith, morals, values, and lifestyles. Americans appear to be creating unique, highly customized worldviews based on feelings, experiences, and opportunities, rather than working within boundaries." Of a comprehensive, time-tested, consistent worldview. That's that's what kind of prompted this this discussion we're going to have today. This is a uh, this is a real problem. I mean, if you couple this with um, you know 47 percent of uh, only 47 percent of Americans are currently involved in a local church. Only forty seven percent. so this is the first time since the founding of this nation that we are in a position where less than half of our nation is actively involved in a faith-based community. We are we are abandoning sound theology. We are abandoning the, the traditions of our faith. We are we are loosening ourselves, decoupling ourselves from from the touchstone from the moral, underpinnings of, of who we are and what we do and replacing it instead with this touchy-feely, if it feels good, do it theology. And that's not a failure of the people around us. Please don't understand. I am not in any way, shape, or form criticizing those who don't know Christ. This, this critique is reserved specifically for those of us who are inside the family. This is one of those subjects that made me really, really unpopular as a pastor. These are one of those things that I would consistently say that would get me in quite a bit of trouble. So when we talk about salvation, when we talk about the theology of salvation, I want to take us back and I want to use this podcast to cover just a couple just a couple of the basics, some scriptures that we can look at. And I, and I want us to walk away in this from, with a renewed desire to have meaningful conversations, courageous conversations with the culture around us. We are, as, as Christian academics, we are in a position to have a great deal of influence because culture is downstream from the academy. So what we do in the academy, what we're doing here, makes a world of difference in what happens downstream from us in the culture. Much of this begins here in the academy. So this, this word salvation, this word salvation, um, what is it, what does it mean? Um, if you can look at one dictionary definition, it means deliverance from danger or suffering. That's, that's, one, that's one definition. Um, we've we allowed the culture around us to begin to redefine words. We, we've lost control of the language as people of faith. And when we cede that to to the, to the secular humanists, they control the culture by controlling the language. Now, there is, in one sense, the, the, the Bible does use the word saved to mean, you know, that temporal, physical deliverance. Um, you know, Paul, when he's in the inner cell, he's, he's rescued or saved from that, from that death sentence, but more often and probably more appropriately here, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about matters that concern spiritual deliverance, and it's appointed man once the judge or once to die and then the judgment. That's what we're talking about: is that judgment from God, and you will find that your name is either written in the Lamb's book of life. Or it is not, and that's that's just the that's just the, the, the way of it. Now, at issue here is how does one find your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, in Paul's in Paul's circumstance, it says that the Philippian jailer left with salvation, and he was talking about that that jailer's eternal destiny. Jesus equates being saved with with entering into the kingdom of God. Um, Matthew 19. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Interestingly, when I was in Israel uh, about, what, two years ago, just before COVID hit, I had an opportunity to go see a section of the wall. In Jerusalem that was known as quote the eye of the needle. Now it, it's you know we, we don't normally associate that piece of scripture with an actual physical thing but there is a a, a a space in the wall that's referred to as the eye of the needle. Now could a camel get through it? Absolutely. I got through it and I'm basically the size of a cow. Joking self-effacing humor. Uh, but it 's a very narrow spot. you would have to be very, it would be very very difficult to get a camel through this. Could it be done? Sure it could. It would just be very very difficult. So what Jesus is saying is it 's not impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven it's just going to be very difficult. It says when the disciples heard jesus say it's easier for a camel to go through this very small space in, in this in this wall, the disciples heard this and they said, Who then can be saved?' That's, that's the real question, isn't it? So what are we saved from? Well, saved from is, is, is this idea of um, the wrath of God, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, his being Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And that wrath of God will separate us. You know, I refer to it as the quiet wrath of God. We think of the wrath of God. You know, we hear, uh, you know, we we think of big, loud, um, violent things. And I've always believed that the wrath of God is a very quiet thing, which makes it all the more frightening for me. Our sin has separated us from God. The consequences of sin is death. And biblical salvation reser- re- refers to our deliverance from the consequences of sin as salvation. Salvation from that wrath of God. And that wrath of God is going to be a, a spiritual separation, which is where we get into the idea of hell. I, I, I can't tell you definitively that hell is fire and brimstone and a lake of fire and the devil's running around with a pitchfork and a bifurcated tail. But I can tell you that the very definition of hell is the absence of God. And that I will stand on and say that there is a place after the judgment where you are either in the presence of God or you are completely removed from the presence of God. That, I think, is the real wrath of God. This is, this is that moment on the cross when Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cannot tell you definitively that in that moment, God's pouring his wrath out on Christ. But I believe in my heart that to be true. And I think I can make a pretty solid biblical case for it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the wrath of God. That's, that's God pulling away from the Son, for the first time since forever. Think about that. They've been in perfect unity since the very beginning of forever. And for the first time since forever, that that, that time that stretches out behind us that we have a hard time imagining. God the Father, God the Son lived in perfect unity. Jesus comes to earth as a man, and that unity continues. And then in that moment, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The presence of God is withdrawn in that moment. And the full wrath of God is poured out on His Son on the cross. That's the price that was paid for our our salvation, this, this, this saving us. So the next question then is who does the saving? Is it really a scale? Do I throw all my bad things on one side of a scale and all my good things on the other side of a scale and hope against hope that it tips in my favor? If I'd only helped one more little old lady across the street, if I'd only had one less bad thought, I might have tipped the scales in my favor. Is that, is that really the capricious nature of God that, 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 that 48% of the world thinks we have? God does the saving, not us, thankfully. Second um, Timothy one nineteen who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and the obvious question who is god god the father saved us he called us into this holy calling timothy or titus excuse me titus 3:5 he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, Titus is extremely poignant here. It's not my works of righteousness that matter. It's not what I do on a given day. I've done nothing to earn this. I can do nothing to earn this. But God, in his infinite love... saw me in my distress and stepped into time and took upon himself the wrath of the Father so that my regeneration, my salvation, my calling could happen. Who does the saving? It's not us. It's not my my works of righteousness. Again, scripture says, my righteousness before God is like filthy rags. So the next piece of this. How does God save? So if if, if I'm incapable of, of getting out of my own self-sinning nature, and it's not my good works, it's certainly not a scale, that 48% believe if I just do enough good or if I'm just a good enough person, bad news, you're not. So if it's not me, if it's all upon God, if it all rests upon the shoulders of, of the Almighty, how does God save? Well, God rescues us through Christ. John 3:17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, redeemed, restored through him. Specifically, it was Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection that achieves our salvation. It is the pinnacle moment in all of history. Everything before the cross builds to that point. And everything after the cross is is just us living out what has already happened. Therefore, the cross, that moment on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That moment when Christ, at the end of his life, screams out the word, tetelestai. Means, it is finished. It was a merchant's term. This is what they would write on a debt that you owed. You would write "tetelestai," meaning it's paid for. It is finished. So specifically, it was Christ's death on the cross, and subsequent resurrection that achieves our salvation, Romans five. Uh, For while we were yet enemies and sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of grace. Salvation is the gracious, undeserved gift of God. When we talk about integration in our, in our, of our academics and in our, in our faith, this is why I want you to do that. This is why we want to begin to integrate who we are in faith and who we are as an academic together. And this applies to everything. If we have business, this, is, this applies to why we want to integrate our faith and our business. If we're, whatever it is that we do, we need to have this moment of integration. Why? Because it is a gracious and undeserved gift that God has given us this salvation in Him. It says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. Not even the faith is of ourselves. That is even a gift of God. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of anything you've done so that no one can boast. It's faith in Christ and Christ alone His shed blood on the cross, His redemptive move on the cross that allows us to enter into the throne room of God as redeemed children. So the last piece of this then, if when we're talking to people about their faith, about what it means to be reconciled to God, and and if the numbers are to be believed friends, you can have a conversation with three people, this conversation with three people, and you're very likely to run into at least one who doesn't understand this and believes the wrong things. And it's incumbent upon us to to gently and lovingly and kindly reveal to them the truth. So how is this salvation receive, received? That, that's by faith. right? First, we have to hear the gospel. We have to hear the good news of, of Christ's death and resurrection. Well, who's, who's going to tell people the good news? You, you've heard me say it before, and you'll continue to hear me say it. God has a single plan A, and that's the church. And there is no plan B. So it's incumbent upon us. We. We the people. Not a building with a plaque on it. Not a, a building with a cross on it. The church is us. A dear friend of mine uh, was the head of the denomination I used to work for. And he tells a story about uh, being in a meeting. And his, uh, his daughter was with him. And he had to keep her busy, had to keep her occupied during this meeting. And so he, he handed her some crayons and a piece of paper. And he said, honey, go draw me a picture of the church. Just to get her out of the, out of the area where the meeting was happening. And so she went out to the, to the sanctuary of the church where this meeting was taking place. And when the meeting was over, he came out and, and she had finished her drawing. And she came over and she said, Daddy, look, I drew the church. And he said, when I looked at it, I, I was stunned because it wasn't a building. And I've seen the picture. He framed it. It was in his office. It was just face after face after face of people. This child got it. We are the church. So, in order to receive salvation, first, somebody has to hear the gospel. This is why we talk about that. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. We deal, in the academy, in a very skeptical and in a very difficult area to evangelize. Again, the patron saint, George Barna, said, of, of our ministry specifically, there are very few unreached people groups left in America graduate students are probably the largest group of those unreached peoples. So we have a huge task ahead of us. We are, it's incumbent upon us to reach this unreached people group. But first they have to hear. And we do that with kindness. We don't have to have debates. We don't have to have arguments. We don't have to challenge anybody's lived experience. You know what we do? We show up, we find people where they're at, and we love them like they are. And I believe enough in the sovereignty of God that he's going to make it uncomfortable for them to stay there if we're consistently with them and if we're consistently loving them. So they have to hear the gospel from us, first with our hands and feet, then with our mouths. We have to have these these conversations about Jesus. Evangelism, my definition, a long conversation about Jesus interrupted by time. And what does that do? That allows that individual to believe, to fully trust in what it is that God has done for them. Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the rest of us. We have to, we have to put them in a position where they can fully trust this God who they've been raised in many cases to distrust. Go back and listen to my podcast on Father's Day. You're going to hear a little bit about this. Um, it involves repentance and changing of our mind about sin and about Christ. It's repentance, and the idea of repentance is um, it means literally to to turn around and go the other direction, to repent, to turn away from our sin. And then we have to call out with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10. If you you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We're talking about the most critical issue in front of us as believers: if we fail in this, we fail utterly. There is, there is no plan B. There, there just isn't. Um, In, in 2019, in a study called Reviving Evangelism, data shows that non-Christians would be more open to considering the Christianity if the church had a better reputation. Gen X boomers, builders, Gen Z. We can, we can talk about faith and we can we can we can point out sin, but we're doing this now in, a, in an increasingly inflamed society in a society that is increasingly strident and and and, and pulling back into um, deep into their own camps it, it, it we have to in the academy, we have to Change the way people look at the church and and that means we have to be different. I came up under you know Josh mcDowell's ministry. Um, I know what it's like to to do evangelism in the in the old school kind of way four laws and you jump out and you you catch somebody unawares and and you have a conversation with them and and that worked in the late eighties and early nineties. I don't think it works so much now. We have to become more holistic in our evangelistic approaches. If, if the studies that I'm seeing are correct, half of you listening to me, 47%, believe that sharing your faith with a non-Christian is wrong. That's what what drove me to create this podcast. That half of you sitting out there believe that sharing your faith, sharing your faith, sharing um, the love of Christ with someone with a non-Christian is wrong. Let me tell you, statistically... People come to know Christ because of somebody they know, some close connection to them. Very rarely is it going to be your pastor that's going to be able to do this or an evangelist. It's, it's, a, it's a much more intimate thing because we serve a much more intimate God. And this isn't your fault. This is our fault, the generations that came before you. You have more non-Christian friends than any generation that came before you. You're more plugged into the realities of the world. But we haven't equipped you to reach the next generation. One of the things I want to promise in this next year that, that Christian grads is going to do is we are going to equip you. We are going to give you every tool you need in order to reach your campus, your graduate school, your business, whoever it is you're leading. We're going to give you the tools to do that. That's the reason we've hired a director of campus coaching. We took a long time to do this, to find the right person, and we're excited we're excited to have fun Me coming on board. And I'm excited for you to hear his story. But please understand that this is so important that I am, I am legitimately going to dedicate the next year of this ministry to training and equipping each of you to become effective evangelists. And don't let that scare you. Evangelism is not a scary thing. Again, that's my generation. Shame on us. We've made it a scary thing. We have to combat these numbers. We can't have 47% of the church afraid to share their faith or believe it's wrong to share their faith. Because the result of that is 47% of the population believes that they can get to heaven just by doing good things. there's nothing and I mean nothing okay about that so stay tuned upcoming podcasts are going to give you more tools more tasks more uh, more opportunities and again I'd like to, to to just say you know to everybody listening if this kind of content is important to you if you find this kind of content valuable we would really love if you do a couple of things. Whatever platform you're listening you're listening to us on, if you would give us a five-star rating, that extends our reach. That lets other people find this kind of, of content. And the other thing we need to do is head on over to christiangrads.org and donate any amount. Because it's only because we have really amazing, fantastic partners like you that we can create this kind of content. So welcome to Season 2. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hey, if you want to share this with somebody, please, by all means, grab this podcast, share it out there. Um, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll be back here next week uh, with the, the next part of Season 2. And uh, we want to uh, to encourage you all to, uh, to come back every week and hopefully make this an amazing, important part of your day. Thanks, and we'll see you soon. Go in peace.